0: Hello there and welcome back to peace in their time episode 82 the years of revolution part two as of august 1914 the foundations of czarist russia appeared to be secure it had certainly absorbed massive shocks back in 1905 that had nearly broken it but the years of counter-revolution in the meantime had seemingly killed the hopes of a reformed non-absolutist russia the liberals were at loggerheads over what to do The left was closely monitored and its leaders were in exile, and new groups like the Black 100s provided the regime with a previously unknown populist base of support. Added to that, money was being dumped on the country courtesy of foreign investment, helping expand industry and an overhaul of the military. It appeared as if the storm had passed for Tsar Nicholas II. Unfortunately for him and his dynasty, though, the demands of imperial competition always turned self-destructive sooner or later and that moment was finally arriving with a vengeance. For all of the autocracy's new security, there was a lingering sense among the elites that Russia's status as a great power needed some foreign victory to be taken seriously again after the Japanese debacle. I've used the term great power a lot in this series, and while I know that term is self-explanatory, it's good to remind yourself now and again how seriously people took it back then and how fragile a status it was perceived to be. And in Russia, that status was a component of the Tsar's legitimacy, so Nicholas wanted a win that he could personally take credit for. And as we all know ad nauseum by now, it was expected to come from the Balkans. Russia had left their ally, Serbia, twisting in the wind when Austria-Hungary unilaterally annexed Bosnia in 1908. A bit of tactical inaction forced by the disorders, Russia was only just emerging from at that time with Russia's sights set firmly on Central Europe after backing off the Far East, that inaction would not be repeated. The pan-Slavic bloc of the imperial court were dead set on smashing up the two German-dominated empires and ushering in a new era of Russian dominance in Europe. So, when World War I kicked off, Russia was ready to go, which was something her opponents did not expect. The Germans famously wanted to focus on France, while the Austrians split their attentions between the East and Serbia. The Central Powers had assumed that backwards Russia would take weeks to mobilize their armies and bring them to bear. Eight years of investment had paid off, though, and the modernized army was able to assemble in a couple weeks, not the month and a half expected by the other side. This royally screwed over the Central Powers, as Germany was forced to transfer vital troops from France to the East, and the Austrians were caught completely off guard. In the northern sector against the Germans, a pair of Russian armies advanced into East Prussia on August 17, 1914, panicking the local German commander and causing his quick replacement with generals von Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who early listeners should be well acquainted with already. Funny thing about East Prussia, though, especially in those days, it was kind of a miserable place. The region was packed with thick forests, swamps, and scores of lakes. It would be difficult for a well-led army to keep their troops in good order marching across such terrain, and the aristocratic Russian generals were terrible leaders. The Russian communications were conducted over open radio transmissions, which the Germans could listen to with no difficulty. They learned that the first of the two Russian armies was going to take a supply break and pause its movements for a bit before linking up with the second army. The second army, advancing into the southern part of East Prussia, was going to keep moving right into all that bad terrain. Hindenburg and Ludendorff let them do just that, all the while surrounding them as the Russians couldn't detect the danger. The trap was sprung, and the Germans descended on the Russian army from all sides. By August 31st, the Russians had suffered 78,000 casualties, and 92,000 were lost as prisoners. A scant 10,000 Russians were able to escape, and most of the 2nd Army's heavy equipment was lost. The army's commander, General Samsonov, killed himself after the debacle. It would come to be known as the Battle of Tannenberg and cemented the hindenburg Ludendorff team as the most capable command in Germany. And they weren't finished either. They swung around to the Russian 1st Army and moved to do the same thing to that formation. The Russian commander there, one von Rennenkampf, panicked and ordered a retreat. This retreat was done across vast stretches of forest broken by lakes, and the 1st Army fell into confusion and routed. The Germans swarmed in and picked off most of the 1st Army, with only the arrival of yet another force, the 10th Army, slowing them down. Russia lost another 60,000 men dead and 45,000 prisoners between September 7th and 14th. A month into the fighting, and a quarter million men were lost. Fighting continued in the area through the fall and winter, costing the Russians hundreds of thousands more in losses. This was all very bad for a lot of reasons. The Russian government had enjoyed a brief moment of national unity after the war was declared, just like in the first days of the Russo-Japanese War. Which, yeah, might seem weird on account of how everybody had turned on the regime in the meantime, but nobody liked the Germans, so they were willing to give the national unity thing a second chance. Those cheering crowds and public displays of enthusiasm died down real quick, though, after the news came out. Once again, incompetent state cronies, namely the court-favored generals, had betrayed the trust of the Russian soldier and gotten a pile of them killed and captured. People very quickly realized this was going to be another grinder of a war. There was one bright light, and that was on the southern front against the Austrians. Spearheaded by General Alexei Brusilov, who was the star commander in the Tsarist army during World War I, Russia went straight for the Habsburgs jugular. It very nearly succeeded in crushing Austria-Hungary, as over the course of around seven months, they cost that empire a million men in losses and took most of their holdings north of the Carpathian Mountains, requiring a German intervention to prop them up and buy some time. That intervention worked, as the Russians had also suffered hundreds of thousands of losses during the advance, outrun their supply lines, and could pass no further. They also failed to dig in, and when the Central Powers counterattacked in May 1915, Nearly 350,000 more troops were lost in a month and a half. The Russian high command made the decision to abandon Poland entirely and fall back to a more defensible line back east, where they could regroup for a while. This decision came too late, though, and the Central Powers went all out in July 1915. The Russians were in the process of evacuating their western regions and weren't dug in or set up properly to conduct an organized defense. From then to September, the Central Powers stormed through Poland and the Baltics, inflicting another half-million casualties and taking a million prisoners. The Russian army was forced into Belarusia and Latvia, having lost vast stores of guns and equipment that couldn't be withdrawn fast enough. It was appropriately called the Great Retreat. Okay, so this has been a lot of military history so far about a conflict I'm not really supposed to be getting stuck on, but there is a point to all this. Keep in mind, all these catastrophes happened in the span of a year and the public was every bit as incredulous at the sorry performance as you might imagine. The Russian high command, called the Stavka, and yes, it'll be called that in the Soviet Union too, so remember the term, was led by the Tsar's uncle, Grand Duke Nikolai. The commanders were nobles. This was a regime failure, pure and simple. Nicholas would react to the disasters by relieving his uncle of his duties and appointing himself as supreme commander leaving St. Petersburg and setting up shop in the backwater Belarusian town of Mogilev, which was where the Stavka had been relocated following the retreat. This was a truly terrible idea for a lot of reasons, but the big two were, one, it removed the Tsar from the capital. Little side note, during the war, St. Petersburg was deemed too German a name, so the capital was renamed Petrograd, so I'll be going with that for the time being, although it'll be renamed again before this miniseries is over. By leaving the capital the autocracy suddenly was missing its autocrat and yeah nicholas wasn't a competent autocrat but he was necessary to at least approve decisions and provide some coordination his absence meant that the empress and the court were effectively managing things the second big reason him leaving was bad was because nicholas was no general yeah he had gotten his commission as a colonel in his younger days and loved being in the army but that was all for show He left the military duties to his generals, but didn't even attend their meetings, leaving his commanders without a real supreme commander, which defeated the point of him being there in the first place. It was very likely Nicholas really had just wanted to get out of the capital, which given the rapidly mounting chaos, I can't say I blame him. Russia was not prepared for a long war, despite the modernizations. Even before the fighting started, a six-month window was considered the best length of time for Russia to be engaged in heavy fighting. That had not only been exceeded, but huge amounts of weaponry had been lost as well. The Russian army was effectively run out of weapons with which to fight. And that's not an exaggeration either. One of the big reasons the Great Retreat was such a disaster was because the Russians were fighting with a fraction of the artillery and machine guns the Germans were bringing to bear. And they also suffered chronic ammunition shortages. Rifles were in short supply, and if you've heard stories of Soviet troops having to pick up a fallen comrade's rifle to get a weapon, that happened far, far more often in the Tsarist army. To address the situation, the regime put the country on unprecedented war footing. Most of the nation's industry was converted to war production, and its infrastructure was turned over to shipping soldiers and materials for the fight. This was accepted by the populace initially, but the long-term disappearance of even basic consumer goods was going to cause unrest to steadily build in the cities. And turning all the railways over to serving the war effort meant that shipments of food to the cities were badly disrupted. Russia was a food exporter, and most of that food had been sent to Germany. So now that they were at war, that excess food should have been available to the general population. But with the railways occupied, it couldn't get shipped in. Hunger was going to hit the empire, even though there was more than enough food in the countryside. There just simply wasn't enough rail capacity to ship it in which also served as a public demonstration of where the government's priorities were. And there was also an unnerving tendency among the peasants to simply hang on to the grain instead of selling it on the market. The reason for this was because they wouldn't be getting as much on the domestic market as the export one, so they figured they'd just sit on the grain until the more profitable option became available again. A government that could actually govern would have set up something, anything, to convince the peasants to part with the grain, but the Tsar state just didn't have that local-level footprint to do anything. So, nothing was done, and the problems just got worse. And Russia's industries weren't even sufficient to meet the army's needs anyway. Huge sums had to be spent in order to buy weapons from foreign sources, which could only be shipped in through the often-frozen ports of Murmansk, Archangel, and Vladivostok. That last one you probably remember from the Siberian Expedition episodes— It had the huge depot of weapons just sitting there because there was only the one railroad that crossed Siberia. The supply shortages for the army would be eased over time, but the damage was largely done. The Russian army would never be fully equipped, and its quality was shot. One amazing factoid is that despite all the defeats, the army was constantly getting bigger as more recruits were brought in. The pre-war strength was a million and a half men, and by 1917, it had risen to 9 million. This wasn't necessarily an advantage, though. The troops lost in the first year were the best trained and disciplined men that Russia had available. As Brusilov would note in 1915, he no longer had troops conditioned to fight a real war at that time. The reservists and conscripts that were drawn up to bolster the ranks were oftentimes unmotivated, undisciplined, and after 1915 especially, were increasingly unwilling to die for the glory of the imperial state. One of the few saving graces for the regime was that they got rid of the dedicated political opposition at the start of the war. The Akrona went into overdrive and started rounding up dissidents. The Bolsheviks were especially hit hard by the mass arrests and Siberian exiles, and that faction's footprint in Russia itself was removed from the street within a few months in 1914. So despite all the bad, the regime could at least count on not having revolutionary agitation from such an early stage. The problem, though, was that the mechanisms of the state, which I've pretty well established were much weaker than assumed thanks to incompetence and underfunding, meant that keeping a lid on dissent wasn't going to be permanent. And just as the nation suffered as its transportation network was wholly taken over by the war effort, so too were the provincial administrations disrupted and public order began to break down. This allowed revolutionary elements of the country to build ...back up again as things got worse. And the autocracy was in the meantime doing everything in its power to make the situation worse. The bloodletting and mayhem of the first year was met by the leading aristocracy with a dismissive shrug. And the Russian commanders advised their allies they had plenty of bodies to throw into the grinder. This sentiment was not masked from the public and it garnered only contempt from the intelligentsia normal citizens... Matters weren't helped by the Tsarina Alexandra becoming the leading figure in the imperial court once Nicholas had left for the front. She didn't have any official position in the government, but she was one of the few in constant contact with the Tsar, and he being a weak-willed person meant that he bowed to her wisdom when it came to events in the now distant capital. She was unpopular with the nobility to begin with, and the people had grown to despise her as well. Her German heritage was a massive PR liability in a war against well, the Germans, and as you might very well already be aware, she had taken up with the mystical monk Rasputin. Okay, probably going to disappoint you, but I'm not going to dwell very much on Rasputin. You've probably heard about him already, and I'll be frank, the royal family was already so out of touch with reality and the autocracy already so undermined that he probably didn't speed up the collapse of the Romanovs that much nor was he responsible for creating conditions that eventually resulted in the Soviet Union coming into existence, which is kind of what I'm trying to focus on here. He did create a crisis of confidence in the capital, though, as in a world of ranks and status, he was an outsider who reveled in his friendship with the royal family. This friendship stemmed from him supposedly being able to miraculously heal Nicholas's son Alexei during the child's constant struggle with his hemophilia, which, to be fair... Some of the stories surrounding that are pretty wild, and by the time of the war, the Tsarina was wrapped around his finger, being apparently the only guy who could help her little Alexei. Rasputin was not the humble type, and immediately used his relationship to rub shoulders with high society, never once abandoning his unwashed, half-crazed, mystic persona. Stories surrounding him conflict, some claimed he was a sexual virtuoso and was banging half the noble ladies in Petrograd, Some said he was impotent and couldn't do the deed at all. Regardless of fact or fiction, he strolled around like he owned the place, by which I mean the capital, and the nobility despised him. The tales of depravity and, well, just general bad behavior made it back to the papers, and the masses became aware that their Tsarina was in the thrall of a madman. It also didn't help her efforts at appointing favorites to government positions, meant that some of the worst possible men wound up governing parts of the country and the way you earned her favor was usually by butting up to Rasputin. This was not a recipe for stability, as men were appointed to high office, then removed on a whim, because a new favor to the Tsarina and Mad Monk came along. In a year and a half between 1915 and 1917, there were four prime ministers, five ministers of the interior, three foreign ministers, three war ministers, three ministers of transport, and four ministers of agriculture. It was chaos and sapped the government at the very worst time. The entire affair was bizarre and only undermined the dynasty with every section of society. The Tsar himself was a hindrance as well, because, well, did you expect him to be a help? Unwilling to effectively exercise the unlimited power he insisted on hoarding, many began calling for the Duma to take an enhanced role. That body had dismissed itself voluntarily at the start of the war at the request of Nicholas, but the Tsar had been forced to recall it in mid-1915 after the numerous disasters had weakened his position. Now the members of the Duma were calling for the Tsar to shift more powers of government over to them. What was worse for him was that his own ministers were agreeing with those opinions. At the advice of the Tsarina, Nicholas responded on September 2, 1915, by dissolving the Duma and declaring the existing government would remain as is. He appeared to win the day as his ministers fell in line and the liberals proved unwilling to open the Pandora's box of mass protests. It didn't do anything to reverse the situation, though, and the steady breakdown of state power as the government found itself unable to pull together was alleviated only by the zemstvos. Just like in previous times of crisis, these local bodies got together and offered the most viable organization and leadership to help the nation out. They again helped organize donations from patriotic citizens, which included money, food, and fabric for clothes. They also saw to all this actually being delivered to troops in the front, and set up mess halls and field hospitals to provide further relief. During the Great Retreat, the army had practiced scorched-earth tactics, which meant that everything of value that could be evacuated was sent east. Anything that could not was destroyed. This prompted millions living in the affected areas to flee eastwards themselves, creating hundreds of thousands of refugees. These people were also attended to by the organization set up by the Zemsfo's. By 1916, the Union of Zemstvos had become a kind of second state with a bureaucracy of its own in the hundreds of thousands and managing 8,000 affiliates working to keep the nation from breaking down. And it was effective. Where the state couldn't provide its soldiers or citizens any amount of care, they could, which annoyed the autocracy and created friction as the vain officials tried to interfere with their efforts. They placed a greater fear on their own authority being undermined than the suffering of their own citizens which just created resentment among those who were just trying to help, and further questioning of why they were serving such an obviously broken regime. Still, by 1916 the front lines were stabilized and the immediate crisis had passed. But that wasn't going to hold forever, and the Russian leadership knew they had to wrap the war up. Moreover, things were looking dicey out in the West, as the Germans were storming Verdun and bringing the French to the brink. An attack on the Germans in the Baltic in late winter had ended in failure, so this time, the Stavka decided to focus their efforts against the Austrian armies to the south. Brusilov had wanted a general offensive all across the front, but the other commanders didn't want to attack the Germans. So Brusilov had to keep his ambition smaller. After careful preparations, which included actual scouting, properly concentrating his artillery, and making plans to storm the Austrian trenches, Brusilov's troops launched their attack on June 4, 1916. The attack went great. Hundreds of thousands of Russians died, but the Austrians lost a million men, and the Germans had to dispatch troops from the west to save their asses once again. The success spurned the cut order the other commanders to attack, which they did with no preparations or intent to fight for very long, and those attacks against the Germans to the north immediately fizzled out. It was the last success Russia enjoyed in the war, and even then, it was a costly one. The massive call-ups of men into the army were by that point also causing manpower shortages behind the lines. This prompted the Tsar to order almost 400,000 of his Central Asian subjects to be drafted into labor units on June 25th. The intent was to draft these non-Russian Muslim subjects into non-combat roles to ease the manpower problem without making them fight a war they had no stake in. The order filtered into these distant outposts over the next two weeks, and the officials tasked with the rollout did not do a very good communications job. Instead of explaining just what the call-up meant, most of the locals were simply advised that they were being put at the Tsar's service and shipped out. This led to some misunderstandings, as communities came to believe their sons were being sent out to fight in the war. Remember, most of Central Asia were new additions to the empire, and its peoples accepted foreign rule only conditionally, The idea of fighting for the Tsar was unacceptable. Resistance started immediately, and railroads and telegraph lines were sabotaged. By July 17, 1916, the situation got bad enough in Turkestan that the entire region was placed under martial law. It wasn't enough, and an uprising spread all across Central Asia. The Tsarist response to the uprising that summer was swift and brutal. Armies rolled in and hunted down the rebel bands, killing 90,000. The worst, though, were the tactics employed to bring the general population to heal. In restive areas, the Russians turned to tactics similar to those used by the United States in its conquest of the western frontier. The Russians started snatching up every bit of livestock they could get their hands on. Horses, camels, sheeps, goats, cattle, you name it, they took it. And in a region where the livelihood of most was a pastoral one, this was devastating. As a result, some 250,000 people fled across the border into the Xinjiang province of China, which at the time was around a fifth of the region's population, although most would filter back in during the next year. The uprisings were put down, but come 1917, the people would again go into a revolt, and Central Asia was one of the first areas the Russian state lost control over. By the latter part of 1916, the situation was becoming unsustainable. The government was falling apart, the army was falling apart, the country was falling apart. Plots started circulating among the nobles in the capital to install Nicholas's brother Mikhail as a regent. A far more dangerous plot was won by Prince Lvov and some of the generals to arrest Alexandra and coerce the Tsar into turning power over to his uncle Nikolai. I say the second plan was more dangerous because it was supported by both the liberals and the officer corps, including Brusilov. A fateful moment was the occasion of Rasputin's murder on December 16th. While Rasputin proved to be tough as hell and resisted several means in which to kill him, he did finally die. The Petrograd nobility were ecstatic, and Alexandra fell into despair, a mood that was imparted to Nicholas. He retired to the Tsarské Selo, a complex of palaces for the imperial family south of Petrograd. He cut himself off, but resolved to cling to his absolute power. The clock was now ticking its last moments for his dynasty. As all these events had transpired, conditions in the cities grew steadily worse. By the end of 1916, fighting had been going on for over two years, and there was no end in sight. Or at least, there was no good end in sight. The food shortages had only grown, and the stores were all empty of the essentials with which to simply live. Workers even began to be laid off, as the railways could no longer bring in sufficient raw materials to keep the factories running consistently. Strikes started escalating, and the leftist groups steadily rebuilt their ranks. In Petrograd on October 17th, a group of protesting workers were set upon by police, and sympathetic soldiers intervened to fight the cops. 130 soldiers wound up being arrested, and on the 19th, 75,000 workers took to the streets to show their support for them. Far more than in 1905, there were now huge numbers of soldiers sympathetic to the common Russian, and not at all to the regime they supposedly served. And remember, by this time, there were 9 million men in uniform. They might not have been the best trained or equipped, but they were there. And unlike in 1905, there was a huge difference in how many troops were on the scene in Petrograd. Back then, the garrison was 2,000 men. Now there were hundreds of thousands in a 30-mile radius, owing to the capital also being a kind of hub for reserve soldiers. Combined with the workers, they had the numbers. And it wouldn't be long before they took the power, too. The breaking point would be delayed, though, by the harshest winter Russia had seen in years. The people and soldiers both clustered in their homes and barracks and focused on staying warm and simply surviving. Once temperatures in Petrograd got to a more manageable 23 degrees Fahrenheit, the people started to emerge, and they were done with it all. The government had responded to calls for more bread by promising a rationing system that would be started on March 1st to ensure that everybody was fed confidence in the government was so low by this time that it was assumed that this actually meant there would be no food going forward. On February 23, 1917, 100,000 workers took to the streets. They scuffled with the cops, and a Cossack unit was sent to disperse them. The mounted Cossacks, though, were green and proved incapable of doing that. The next day, the crowd was 150,000 strikers. Again, the Cossacks were overwhelmed. On the 25th, the crowds reached 200,000 and the city started shutting down. As it became obvious that the crowd control units were ineffectual, the atmosphere turned energetic, and suddenly many things became possible. The Cossacks noticed this too and refused to further engage the crowds, telling the officers on the scene that it wasn't 1905 anymore. All hope of containing the situation faded on the 26th when soldiers were deployed in order to fire into the crowd. Hundreds were gunned down. But the crowds did not disperse, and the soldiers involved returned to their barracks so ashamed of themselves that they refused orders to go back out the next day. Not only did they refuse, they killed their commanding officer and urged all other soldiers in the area to join them in a mutiny. Some did, some didn't, and a fight between the two groups ensued, with the mutineers winning and gaining control of the arsenals. Thousands of troops then took to the streets, and the mutiny spread like wildfire. The government had nothing to respond with, and the February Revolution was on. It was not based on any general ideology just yet, but rather was a united front of the Russian people to do away with the autocracy that for generations had failed and denigrated all of them. Also on the 27th, the people on the streets rebooted the Petrograd Soviet, the People's Council that had been formed and dissolved back in 1905. Tens of thousands took the Torida Palace, which had been the meeting place of the Duma, and from there a wildly ad hoc collection of representatives, were assembled. It was a free-for-all situation, and the soldiers, by virtue of there not being any rules, wound up holding two-thirds of the seats on the Soviet. Which was a little lopsided, but it was still day one, and there was still a lot to be sorted out. At the same location, but in a separate wing, a small group of Duma reps declared themselves to be in charge. Uh, That wasn't true in practice as long as the streets were controlled by the masses, Uh, but as soon as they dispersed, this group would form the core of the provisional government. Most of the state officials either tried to surrender themselves to this group, correctly believing the Duma reps would treat them better than the mob, or they tried to flee Petrograd entirely. In a matter of days, the Tsarist government in the capital had been dissolved. Further, in order to get the soldiers back to the barracks and off the streets so some order could be restored, Order No. 1 had to be issued by the Duma and the Soviet. It was a demand from the soldiers that they would be treated as normal citizens while not on duty, and during those times, did not have to defer to their officers. In addition, titles accorded to the officers implying social superiority were to be removed. This was the moment where the breakdown in army discipline would spiral out of control across the entire empire. On March 2nd, the provisional government formally got going, with Prince Lvov being chosen to be the man in charge as both Prime Minister and Minister of the Interior. He lacked the killer instinct that might have been useful in those days, but he was one of the few men with a national profile that was built on universal respect, what with his years of working through the Zemsvos. And while he had joined the cadets previously, it was well known that he didn't stand on party affiliation. He was the perfect pick for what the government tried to accomplish in its first days, which was namely set up a new political order first and foremost with maybe societal reform down the road the Akrona would be dissolved, the political prisoners freed, and the freedom of the press guaranteed. Which, yeah, was kind of opening up Pandora's box, as Lenin gleefully declared Russia in that moment to be the freest country in the world. The Pandora's box aspect of it, of course, being that the new government was very lenient on those who might seek to tear it down. Aside from Lvov, there was one other prominent official, Alexander Kerensky, who had been a member of the Trudoviks. And despite that group being a breakaway from the SRs, he still kept good relations with that group and drew a lot of support from them and the other socialists. He had been an active populist in the Fourth Duma and won wide popularity for daring to oppose the Tsar's unchecked grip on power. He became Minister of Justice, but exercised influence beyond that office and had aspirations beyond it too. He was personally charismatic, an excellent public speaker, and at 35, still young by national leader standards. It was around him that a cult of personality would develop, or at least the makings of one. He never really got far enough to really do it. Critically, the establishment of the provisional government did not immediately address a number of very, very pressing issues. The status of the monarchy was to be decided at a later assembly, although it was universally agreed Nicholas was going. Nobody would come out and say anything firm on if the war would be continued, which was really going to bite the government down the road and the issue of land reform wasn't brought up, which, while probably too big of a problem to tackle immediately, they could have at least said it was a priority. And this was going to be the big problem that would eventually sink the provisional government after less than eight months, an inability to really take responsibility and just start issuing some damn orders. Although that might be a little harsh, as the Petrograd Soviet from the start established itself as the true power in the capital and exercised an effective veto over the government's decrees which was kind of a knock on the Soviet as well. That body loftily talked about empowering the workers and soldiers, but themselves shied away from actually seizing power. Ultimately, the Soviet, and its counterparts established in other cities later, proved to be more interested in backseat driving than actually taking a leadership role, which goes a long way to explaining how such a small group like the Bolsheviks were able to co-opt the Soviets so effectively. And it wasn't like the collapse of the nation did the provisional government any favors either. And it is part of why I won't be lingering too long over them. Russia was in the throes of revolution due to the failures of the autocracy. And the reason the provisional government is going to be more of a footnote in this narrative is because their great sin was being unable to clean up the autocracy's mess. Nicholas, meanwhile, was twiddling his thumbs back at the Stavka and Mogilev, continuing to deliberately ignore events in the capital since the murder of Rasputin. Those around him had noted the withdrawal inward and concluded that he had given up on saving his regime and was just counting out the days. Uh, Whatever the actual case was, it didn't matter. The man with absolute power in Russia was no longer in control, whether he understood it or not. There was some talk among the generals to organize some, you know, response to what was going on in Petrograd, but the acting commander-in-chief, General Mikhail Alexeev, quietly ordered those attempts to be aborted. Not even the officer corps is going to lift a finger to save Nicholas. Alexeev was also afraid that if the troops entered Petrograd, they'd just encounter the mutineer troops and go over to their side. That could spread revolutionary sentiment all the way to the front, and that would end the war. On March 2nd, Nicholas bowed to the demands of the provisional government and abdicated his throne, declaring that his son Alexei would be bypassed on account of the whole hemophilia thing and go to his brother Mikhail. Mikhail very reasonably declined to accept the throne, saying he'd only take it if offered by the new government. This offer never materialized, and with a whimper, the 300-plus-year dynasty of Romanov was no more. It was all happening so fast that the professional revolutionaries couldn't keep up. The leadership of the RSDLP was mostly still abroad, and while, for example, Trotsky rushed from New York exile back to Petrograd, Lenin was stuck in neutral Switzerland, surrounded by hostile powers. Even still, important groundwork for the near future was laid down in those early months in 1917. The workers of the country took their newly won freedoms and ran with them, striking not just for better living conditions, but demands to be treated with respect socially as well. They would be servants no more. And the trade unions began organizing their workers not just on the factory floors. Committees were established to manage both the workplace and their communities. They armed themselves into militias to police the districts of the cities where the workers lived, and these units became larger and more organized over time, until eventually they started being referred to as the Red Guards. This was all encouraged by members of the RSDLP, who inserted themselves into these organizations. I am still saying RSDLP because the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks were working together despite their differences. Although it's important to note that the Mensheviks mostly focused on communal organizing, while the Bolsheviks showed a particular preference to working with the Red Guards. But labor militancy wasn't the real problem threatening the new government, nor would it be what killed its support. No, what really killed it was insisting on keeping Russia's frontiers intact and declaring that they'd fight to keep them. This was decided mostly by the cadets, who were still patriots after all, and also wanted to keep the officer corps on their side. And those guys wanted to keep fighting. This pretty much doomed the cadets in the long term, but the real kicker was that the SRs and Mensheviks largely joined in with them. They half-heartedly justified it by saying all the peoples on the frontier would be given more autonomy, so it was all okay. In reality, they too didn't want the responsibility for declaring the massive war lost and capitulating to the Germans. This was also during a time when nationalist movements were really kicking into high gear. With the new press freedoms and the police state being wound down, every kind of separatist or at least pro-federalist group was rising into prominence in the non-Russian areas of the empire. The new freedoms also allowed the return of foreign exiles, most prominent among them being Lenin. He was famously put on board a sealed train and allowed by the Germans to return over their territory to Russia in the correct hope he would destabilize the new government. Less known is that he was far from the only dissident returning home from exile via Germany, Everybody was being sent back to cause trouble. The Bolsheviks made as big a moment as they were capable of Lenin's return on April 3rd, with flags and banners and an honor guard standing by. Lenin, who had been out of the country for a decade and had spent a total of 17 years in exile, was quick to seize the moment. On the 4th, he presented himself before the RSDLP segment of the Petrograd Soviet in the Torda Palace. He threw down the gauntlet, declaring that the bourgeois revolution that would set the stage for the future socialist one was to be bypassed completely. Power had to be seized right away, as both in 1905 and up to that point in 1917, the liberals had proven to be too weak to properly assume power. If the situation wasn't properly managed, there would be a counter-revolution like a decade ago, and all progress could be lost. The moment was dramatic, but the party was unmoved, The Mensheviks predominated in the Soviet, and they wanted to support the government. The Bolsheviks would have to limit their activities to agitation for the moment. But it was in that agitation that they would find their critical base of support, the average workers. Lenin's assertion that the new government was incapable of delivering on the desires of the masses found an audience, one that continuously grew as the government proved to be just as incapable as the Bolsheviks claimed. The message also further radicalized those same masses, with the simple idea that a clique of well-to-do politicians were working against their interests, and thus were enemies to be overcome. Us versus them is a very effective political strategy, and the side who finds it distasteful will typically lose out to the side that does use it. And in addition to the workers' Red Guard units I mentioned earlier, the Bolsheviks also started getting their hooks into the armed forces. The sailors at the Kronstadt Naval Base, located on an island off the coast of Petrograd, came around to the Bolshevik message and had in May declared their own Soviet to be independent of the national government. While they backed off this stance later, their dislike of the provisional government remained. The sailors had killed many of their officers and scared off the survivors, and were ready to take up arms at the drop of a hat. In the city itself, the tens of thousands of soldiers there had agreed to work with the Bolshevik leadership. In June, the Bolsheviks planned a massive rally of workers, sailors, and soldiers— ostensibly as a tribute to the revolution, but really as a show of force. The larger Soviet was alarmed at the prospect of Lenin and his crew putting that many boots on the streets all at once, and maybe staging a coup, and banned it. Lenin, for once, backed off. That rankled the fired-up marchers as the rally was canceled at the last minute, and they were ready to go. The Soviet did sponsor a June 18th march, but that was hijacked by the Bolsheviks getting the crowd on board with their All Power to the Soviet slogan which was to say all power to the revolutionary councils that had sprung up all across the nation in imitation of the Petrograd Soviet, and very much so, not to the provisional government. The provisional government itself didn't have a whole lot to respond with. The focus of the government, and especially Kerensky once he was appointed as Minister of War in May, was to launch an attack on the central powers. Despite the worsening situation at home, the government resolved to stay in the war, in part to keep good relations with their Entente allies, who continued to help finance the state. General Alexeev had resisted calls for an offensive, observing that the army had been democratized, meaning the rank and file had a say in their own decision-making. Such an army could not be expected to sustain an attack against determined opposition. I mean, imagine having prior experience storming a trench, then getting to vote on whether to do it again in the future. Would you really vote yes? But Kerensky was adamant, and Brusilov was gunning for one last attack. Russia's great general did a lot to hype up the government on their chances of success, and replaced Alexeyev as commander-in-chief as a result. On July 1st, the attack was launched. Brusilov struck once again against southern Poland and the Austro-Hungarian sector. The first few days saw some success, but the central powers held their ground, and the Russian soldiers started exercising their new democratic rights and began shooting down orders to carry on the attack. Coordination and discipline broke down, and by July 16th, the army was in full retreat, fleeing well past their starting positions in their flight east. In this latest fiasco, 400,000 men had been lost, hundreds of thousands more deserted, becoming an armed group of bandits in the rear areas, and the army ceased to be an effective fighting force. The government was embarrassed. Its legitimacy was called into question by the scale of of the disaster. There had been loud calls against the attack. They had been ignored, and the new regime proved to be even less effective than the czar it had replaced. It didn't help either that with the Mensheviks and SRs having joined the government, that the liberals had taken a swing to the right in a fearful reaction to the socialist presence in government by the summer. Ministers of the Cadet Party quit the cabinet, leaving the moderate socialists largely holding the bag. The feeling of national unity inspired in February had eroded away by July. Now the government was too polarized to save itself. This was noticed by the armed elements of the Bolsheviks, And they wanted to make a real deal play for power. This was an incredibly dangerous situation for Lenin, as his backpedaling in early June had damaged his credibility with them, and his attempt on June 20th to convince them not to march was not received very well. Still, he and many others in his camp were uncertain about an uprising's chances of success. On July 3rd, soldiers and workers took to the streets anyway. However, This group didn't really have a set leadership and it was more of a group effort inspired by the Bolsheviks and not really controlled by them. And like we've seen with so many rapidly planned coups, they didn't know what to do after they made their first moves. It was correctly believed by many that the coup would peter out as while they had taken the streets by day, the crowds went home in the evening without securing any concessions. The Bolsheviks, by far the most aggressive political faction, found itself unsure of what to do or how far to push. Momentum appeared to swing back towards the Bolsheviks the next day though as 20,000 Kronstadt sailors showed up to support the uprising. Most of the cabinet, including Prince Lvov, were secured and the Torida palace was surrounded by 50,000 soldiers with the Soviet trapped inside. But despite the presence of the troops, they were not there to threaten the Soviet, but rather they wanted it to seize power from the government. Keep in mind, these troops were encouraged and guided by the Bolsheviks, but they weren't 100% beholden to them. To the soldiers, the Bolsheviks and the leaders in the Soviet were all on the same side. The Bolsheviks were just agreeably aggressive. One soldier memorably yelled at the Soviet leaders, Take power, you son of a bitch, when it's handed to you. But the Soviet, led by the still mostly Menshevik Trotsky, managed to shame the troops into backing off through oratory. And seeing that they had no leadership willing to seize power, the troops withdrew and the uprising fizzled out into an anticlimactic end. The response by the government was unsurprising. Finally forced into action, they ordered the arrests of all the Bolsheviks they could get their hands on, collecting around 800 and forcing Lenin to flee the capital in disguise for Finland. In the days of the Akrona, this would have signaled long years of repression, but the government crackdown was only a partial success at best. Bolsheviks were removed from the streets, But the Soviet turned around and denounced the repression, not wanting to give ammunition to a right-wing backlash. And as far as popular support went, the Bolsheviks hadn't really done anything wrong. The soldiers and the workers still wanted the change of leadership. They just wanted somebody to finally step forward and, you know, take that leadership. The government, for its part, made its last leadership shuffle before its end. Prince Lvov, finding himself outmoded as a unity leader in a nation with no unity, resigned in favor of Kerensky on July 7th. He was a man of no small self-confidence and believed that he himself could bridge the nation on his own. With what tools he intended to accomplish this, I have no idea. Soviets had appeared all across the nation, state apparatus was crippled beyond repair, and the army was beyond its last legs. The Germans advanced to Riga by August 21st, and it looked like they were going to march all the way to Petrograd. In desperation, Kerensky would turn over extraordinary powers to the newest commander-in-chief of the army, Lavar Kornilov, setting the stage for the final crisis of the provisional government and giving the Bolsheviks one more chance to topple the state. If there was one thing that could restore the legitimacy of the Bolsheviks as a revolutionary group after the wet fart that was the July days, it would be a reactionary general trying to force his vision of order on the nation and the Bolsheviks would not waste this new opportunity, as the third time proved to actually be the charm. Now, to get to this point, I've covered a whole lot of ground really fast. But good news, from here on out, it's going to slow down. Way down. Next week, we finally, finally get to the sparks that set off the October Revolution. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.